Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It is going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. This is the first time you are tuning in. If you're watching us on the screen right now, uh, be sure to sign up for QuickFS. This is the software that Jeff and I use every single day uh, to pull financial data. Is this the first website that you typically go to when you look up a company or are interested in a business? Yes. Just to kind of look at it from like a high level overview. Yeah. My homepage is actually the SEC, uh, you know, the Edgar, SEC.gov slash Edgar or whatever. But, uh, but this is the one I would most frequently go to. Yep. So do you use the classic version on the SEC.gov website or do you roll with the new version, the change? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I guess, um, it's changed. It has changed. But it's I don't use the, but I, you mean, do I change it to HTML instead of the XBR? Well, no, I do that as okay. well. But I'm saying like when you're just typing in the tickers and you're going through to search for the filings and stuff like that. When they have a text search now. Yeah. 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 So, and then you could, if on the top right, it's harder to it's find classic. Now, yeah. Actually. Yeah. I know yeah. So I, I stick with the classic, but anyways, uh, if you want to get access to that, go to quickfs.net. And when you do sign up, tell them that you came from focus compounding, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button, both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Uh, of course, leave a rating review and the best place to get everything focus compounding that we put out into the world is to actually follow me on Twitter at focused compound. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you know this cause I don't know if you, how often you check uh, the Twitter, but somebody um, made a fake at focused compound account this past weekend and was DMing people. So it's interesting. They block me, but if I don't block them, then they could still retweet my tweets. So what they do is they take the bio, they take everything. They spout compound a little bit different. So people don't really know the difference. Mm -hmm. And then they'll go and they'll retweet all my tweets. So it really looks like it's their feed. If you don't notice that it's like retweeting it. And do they do this maliciously or just to get a bunch of followers? I would would say maliciously because they're DMing people uh, trying to sell them some investing or trading service. Or something oh well, like that. so I don't know. If people trying would... to, they may not be trying to harm us, just profit off of it. Okay, but yeah. uh, maybe. Yeah, you know, I mean, other when people. I wrote a blog and stuff, people they, in certain countries, people took everything from the blog, put it up, uh, Google translated things, stuff like that. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I did put out a which um, I only found out about because someone would like say, "I saw this link to your whatever thing, and it's not my article." <laughs> well, that's that's basically people were DMing me, and like there were full on conversations before okay. people realized that it wasn't me. Somebody even said, "I'm trying to sell this trading service," and somebody oh. said them like, "Oh, I thought you guys." were long-term investors not <laughs> traders and then he screenshot and dm it to me because he realized uh so i did put out like a tweet basically asking people to report it and then monday morning uh, luckily that account was taken yeah. down so that's why also i had to tweet out enemy defeated acted on your behalf they did yeah, yeah they did okay. so that was cool anyways uh we haven't done a podcast in like over a month so okay. we are back here today and i thought what a great way to get back in the swing of things really just talk about the state of the market uh everything that we you know is kind of going on so we are going to be doing a q a as well so this is going to be the first podcast in the batch so a little bit more of the free form uh but we are going to do a q a as well because a lot of people are asking a lot of questions okay um but so the schiller pe yes right this is the pe that you've always referenced when you talk about um you know just different valuations and stuff and it's the inflation adjusted cyclically adjusted right. uh, pe ratio and if you're watching the screen right now um we're currently sitting at call it 39 times and we are above where we were in 2008 and we are on our way yeah. up to 
2000 tech bubble um, level. Yeah, you should look at the YouTube or whatever so you can see this. But uh, there's two really big spikes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you could say three if you kind of exclude the COVID thing. Um, I mean, if you consider this to be separate from uh, what happened a few years ago, you know. But I would say it's part of the same uh, movement that we have here. So we got two before we have 1929 and we have 1999 basically. And then we have today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just, I just want to set the picture. So we're at, you know, a PE of 39 times, right? Mm -hmm. The past highest time was 2000. Now, right. do you think those are good apples to apples comparison, you know, things to compare because in 2000, yeah. for example, none of those companies had profits at all. You can well, make the argument yeah. that a lot of the you know technology companies today are more real. They have more moats. They're growing. They actually earn cash. Um, so it's a little big bit ones. different. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Some of the biggest ones. I agree with that. However, the, people get confused about that uh, with 2000. They mention a lot of the pets.com and stuff. Big, but not the biggest. Whereas they, you know, Cisco had tons of profits and stuff. Yeah, Microsoft. And, yeah, we looked at and that. And they got to some uh, very high PE ratios. So actually, in some ways, I'd say it's um, it depends. Some is more extreme, some is less extreme. It's definitely much more spread across the entire market mm. than it had been previously. Uh, you know, secondary companies, as Ben Graham would call them, um, so not the leaders in their field, they were much cheaper in 2000 than they are today. And then the, the leaders were much more expensive. But when you average it out, it was, you know, similar to what we, we see now. Um, so I would say that that there's less opportunities that way, but maybe the biggest ones aren't as overpriced as they were in 2000. Uh, on the other hand, as far as like companies not having revenue and stuff like that, that's as bad now as it was then really. Uh, as an example, you can do like price to sales. So some companies have a little revenue or something where they lose money. But even if you're losing money, if you were really cheap versus sales, it might work out eventually. But in general, if you have very high price to sales ratios, that's a sign that people are just speculating on something that's barely a company or, or assigning a really high value to it. And by those measures, we have a few hundred companies at um, double digit price to sales. Now, what are your thoughts in relation to interest rates, for example, and interest rates being at record low levels now compared to 2000, for example? There, is that like a justification you know how people yeah, kind of change, change the facts as you go along i mean what are your thoughts towards that sure it's a justification the same way that saying i'll buy something at 20 times because the market's at 30 is a justification mm -hmm. you know it's instead of buying a bond you could hold cash you could also if you wanted to hold other assets um that aren't as highly priced but it, the interest rate thing is true because as an example, you can look at like real estate companies that are uh, like REITs that just pass through most of it and that it are very um, consistent and safe, but won't grow much and things like that. So like uh, apartment buildings. So there's a par some apartment building REITs that trade at, you know, double digit price to sales ratio without um, uh, EV to sales. So in those kinds of cases, uh, presumably that would have to do with interest rates, right? Because mm -hmm. they see it as an alternative. Um, so that would make the most sense. And you, you see some of those that are pretty extreme. Uh, so I guess people might assume that interest rates will stay very low. Because, uh, however, as I've talked about when I did this um, series about 15 years ago, I wrote a series of blog posts on this kind of topic of normalizing peas and stuff. There is the issue that people assume that interest rates justify stock prices and account for the multiples and stuff. And that's... Um, true maybe half the time and not true about half the time so if you look um interest rates were not especially low and the uh crash of uh, 29 so they'd already been being increased short-term interest rates for a while uh before the crash and even some other forms of interest rates are pretty normal 
at that time. You're talking 1929. Yeah, so money wasn't that easy. And then money was much easier in 2000, um, and then much easier today, but not then. On the other hand, you had very low interest rates right after World War II, uh, about in line with where we are today on some investment-grade stuff. Um, And those, uh, it's a little hard to compare because they issued longer-term bonds than than now, but I would say as low as today. And uh, you had low P.E. ratios. Um, now, there was a recession then, uh, sort of. There was some inflation and, and not so good economic numbers, like 46 to 48. But, um, you know, you you had low, you had very high bond prices while having low stock prices. And that might have still been a hangover from the, the crash in 30, you know, for, because it was only 15 years later or, or whatever, and people expected bad results after the war. Um, so each time is a little different. Now, my question is to you, has the perception of what we use interest rates for and the reaction to the market and everything like that changed since 1929? So like the Fed being on full monetary policy mode, you know, cutting interest rates, nothing pumping capital into the markets. I mean, do you think that argument that you said still holds up because like the perception of the tools has changed yeah and the tools and the no, i shouldn't say the tools but the reaction itself has changed too. yeah the reaction more which right so they were, could be so more they were raising sure. rates basically uh-huh. rates were being raised i mean it was a little different there was a fed before uh, i mean the, the fed as we think of it today most people think of sort of as a reaction to the the crash but actually there was a fed and had been for uh, a decade and a half or so before then um and, and central banks generally around the world were were increasing rates uh and definitely money was becoming tighter call money and stuff in in new york uh, when that crash happened and then recently became looser mm-hmm. um now there's also a difference though that they thought the economy was good back then and they think it's bad now you know that it had been bad because of covid and things like that so those are differences um there's lots of differences you know um it's interesting because some of the differences are a little you know, it doesn't compare as well to 2000 in some ways. So a lot of these things, I mean, interest rates are higher now than they were in 2000, but most of the other kind of arguments for why you would want high stock prices kind of sound a lot better in 2000 than today. Uh, those companies were really, really growing fast back then. They're not growing so fast now. Um, the government was about to report a surplus. It's reporting a huge deficit now. Uh, inflation was under control and had been getting you know more under control on an average basis for you know a better part of 30 years and um i mean most of the things that would cause inflation have been getting better and better for at least 20 or 30 years and uh now they're you know getting worse compared to what they've been for the last 20 years so you know i I mean in general you'd expect more of those arguments to make sense in 2000 than today i would say um but interest rates are lower today and then maybe there's a perception of a different behavior from central banks and from governments and things like that about how they react because of how they reacted in the immediate aftermath of the 2000 recession 2008 and covid mm-hmm. and so maybe because of all of those reactions um there's a perception that government policy will be different that if there's ever a huge crash they will basically step in to 
save the day. Sure, because when I was mentioning that stock prices weren't that high in right after World War II, um, the perception was that governments would really tighten their belts and um, uh, try to run surpluses and things because that's normally what you did in peacetime right after war. And you demobilize and all that, and so that could cause a recession, but that you pay down debt. And now maybe the perception is that it would be the opposite, and maybe that's good for stocks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was the opposite in the early 70s. Um, you know, government policy and things like that were pretty loose compared to what that maybe they, they should have been targeting. And, uh, you know, that kind of stimulative stuff that they were doing, uh, wasn't considered good for stocks, but that was because inflation already set in, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you look at that, the other period that you see, it's, it's barely noticeable on the chart, but around 65 or so, um, there's actually a pretty high point in stocks. Now they've been, they've been that high before, but it was one of the higher points since 29 and uh that would have that's really logical if you go back and read about what was happening around 65 and around 2000 those would have seemed like really really logical things where people thought the future was really bright very more so than bright um very predictable mm-hmm. uh there was you know a moderation in all sorts of uh, kind of economic results you weren't having deep sharp uh recessions you weren't having a lot of inflation um, profitability was pretty good with companies, but wages were doing well, all those sorts of things. Governments, um, budgetary situation seemed okay, things like that. And then they got worse after that. So some of it might be a perception of just what the last few years are. And to your point about inflation, so that's mm-hmm. a fear by a lot of people. Buffett's talked about, you know, the best way to combat inflation is to own businesses that, you know, can basically raise their prices, have pricing power. Mm-hmm. So seize candies, for example, they can handle an inflationary uh, right. world and still maintain value. Um, you know, but the problem is, is that most businesses can't, right, come out like that in real terms. Uh, earnings might be up, but the business will, uh, you know, still be compelled to invest more and more dollars into the business uh, just to basically stay in place. Um, you know, so my question is to you. So we have the market uh, by valuation measures at mm-hmm. all-time highs. We have you know, deficits, like you said, interest rates at record lows, um, and then inflation fears. And mm-hmm. again, there's two types of forecasters, right? The funny joke, those that know that they don't, or those that don't know, and those that know that they don't know, for mm-hmm. example, or don't know that they don't know, maybe there's three types. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so my question is to you, because we're in the camp of, look, this is all, you know, look for the extremes. We've talked a lot about stuff that you've done in the past, like with Colin Frost and, you know, interest rates and stuff like that. Right. It was really an extreme point. So how do you handicap that going forward? And how are you thinking through all these things as it relates to investing and looking at companies? Is it really just staying in your lane and not, you know, overpaying for junk? Is it, you know, sticking to the business quality where these businesses can survive in any sort of interest rate environment, any sort of inflation, uh, inflationary environment? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's become more difficult recently to avoid, um, I don't know that thinking about these sorts of macro things helps that much, but it, it, it has gotten involved, um, these sorts of macro things that people are talking about with whether to buy certain stocks in particular in banks and insurers. Um, because there are some things where they'd be attractive if, um, the future was going to be a lot like the past or, mm-hmm. or the present, uh, but they are riskier, 
um, even in just in the sense that they'd have lower earnings and things like that in the future uh, under certain conditions that so, might be more likely to exist. So what do we mean? Let's unpack that. So are you referring to like the you know Fed funds rate being basically nothing and then where interest rates are? Yeah. So if you have a situation in, in the future where you have meaningfully higher interest rates uh, than the and meaningfully higher inflation than when certain decisions are made. So in terms of a cycle, the issue is miscalculation because things have changed between when you made an earlier decision and now. And so for a bank that might be making a, a loan that uh, has a nice spread on it now, but of course the money that you'll be funding it with in the future might cost more than the loan that you're making now will by the time that the um, you're you know halfway through the loan or something. So if you lend out at four and a half percent and you're borrowing at nothing now, that sounds great. But then if you're borrowing at five percent later, then that's not so great. Mm-hmm. And insurers obviously with with premiums, that's a big issue for certain sort of certain certain sorts of things, um, long tail stuff, but also other things. Uh, they have to be very careful about inflation. I talked a little bit about that in a previous um, podcast and to some extent on their investment side too. But in particular, uh, I think the one that people underestimate is the underwriting side of it. It's not an accident that if you look there, you had some really fast inflation stuff um, surprising people in the uh, 70s. I don't remember the exact year, but probably the worst year for property and casualty might have been around maybe 75, sometime in there. Uh, Berkshire had a really bad year around that time period. Um, and, you know, their costs were inflating at, uh, I think, 1% a month, he said. So uh, that's obviously a big issue. If, if you're targeting a small advantage in the combined ratio and, and um, you know, if you're expecting low levels of inflation, it's pretty high, that's a big problem, you know. And then they went to six-month auto policies and things like that as a reaction to that. So, and Berkshire focused a lot on longer tail stuff, so particularly bad. Um, and you can't estimate all that those things. So, you know, you have to assume jury awards will be bigger in the future, and the cost of healthcare will be higher for stuff, and the um, just every injuries that people have, and the property damage, and all those things. So, you can miscalculate on that. And in particular, with insurers, they also may buy too many, you know, longer term bonds and things. And then, of course, it doesn't really help them if they buy equities instead of bonds. If equities are also pretty expensive, mm-hmm. so. That's a problem that you have there. It's not a problem if you hold cash, and that was kind of the answer with the the frost thing, and also to some extent progressive. Um, both of those um, stocks, when I wrote them up, were keeping a lot of money pretty much idle. So although people said they're not incredibly cheap, they might be a little cheap. They were a little cheap while not using a lot of their balance sheet, basically. And so it seemed at that time that, well, if things get better for them, they have better yields available later, they'll make a lot of money. And if things stay about the same, they, they won't lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won't lose any money, but you won't lose money in the stock. You'll still make a good, you know, I, I figured you'd at least match the market or actually beat the market. So how are you thinking about, um, you know, interest rates, for example, in relation to banks? So we've talked a lot about banks on the podcast. I think a lot yeah. of people that follow us, I enjoy listening to us talk about banks. So I'm just kind of curious if you could hit on that a little bit. I mean, what are your thoughts towards that? Certain banks are printing money right now. We talk, yeah, no, it's it, great. Right? For, Fed fund rate is nothing. And if you're yeah. lending out at a much higher rate, that spread could be pretty great. Right. But that's sort of the problem for banks. So that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, in the, it's, see, if you're wrong about that, if you should raise the rate before then and you don't, then you'll be really behind later. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem isn't if banks and insurers to some extent have a sufficient amount of time to prepare for the future 
uh, it's really not that big of an issue. So the, the issue with banks, with some banks, and varies a lot depending on the bank, is that they tend to be in a position where um, they make money by borrowing short and lending long. People always um, want to be able to get their money out at any time, and uh, they always want to have, you know, not always, but they tend to want to have a long-term fixed rate loan. Um, and so as a result, you have this uh, mismatch in and in most banks uh that's going to always be there and that means that you do that really whether you want to or not now you can offset some of that with your securities portfolio and all that but um you know to balance it out more if you're not lending out all of your money but it does present a problem if things happen rapidly if thing or if your bank grows very slowly really the combination of the two if your bank grows pretty fast and the future unfolds pretty slowly in terms of an increase in rates and stuff then you shouldn't have a problem uh, but if you see a bank that's not growing at all, um, let's take an extreme case, and then you have very rapid change in interest rates, and they have been borrowing really short and lending really long, no, obviously that's a problem. It's extremely rare as a, a reason for a bank failing or anything like that. Uh, it did, however, happen to some thrifts in the uh, period from the later 60s to the early 80s. Uh, and that's because they basically stuck to what they'd seen of the world for the entire 1900s. And they really didn't imagine the possibility that there could be really high um, rates of inflation in particular. You know, Obviously, if there hadn't been really high rates of inflation, the interest rate thing is easier to predict. You know, interest rates are not, real interest rates are not going to move around all that much. It's not like you're going to have a future that has 15% real interest rates, but you could have a future that has 15% uh, nominal rates. And they weren't lending out money in real terms, they were lending out in nominal terms, you know? Um, so there's that. And then there's, there's other complications, whether I, I look at things in title insurance and home building and, and, uh, cars and things like that, they may make a lot of money for a short period of time, mm -hmm. which does have an impact for some of them. Um, because it does change your capital position and stuff and give you a much stronger future because, you know, if you're an insurer or something like that, how much capital you have does determine a lot, how much you're able to write in premiums and stuff. So a one-time uh, you know, for a couple of years, having a couple great years uh, actually gives you a bigger enterprise and will allow you to make a lot more money in the future. Sure. So it's not a one-time-off thing. Whereas if you had a brand or something that suddenly made a lot of money, um, or even a commodity thing or whatever, it, it generally isn't going to change it that much. You know, if you have a bunch of oil wells somewhere, you'll make a lot of money when oil is really expensive, but you're going to have a hard time taking that money and then doing good things with it. Whereas, you know, with an insurer, you're going to build up a lot of reserves, uh, a lot of statutory surplus. And so you're probably going to write a lot more premiums in the future and the whole trajectory of the company could be different. So to some extent, um, you know, it's not just the normalized returns that matter. So in those cases, car dealers, title insurers, um, certain banks, things like that, we're seeing really low PEs, but everyone knows that this is a really good year for them, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, how do you handicap that going forward? Yeah. That's the big question. Mm -hmm. You're because, seeing, I mean, if you run a screen right now too, and there's a lot of names, and if it's a screen, for example, that you want to pull up lower PEs or whatever valuation yeah. metric you want to use, you'll look at, you know, what happened last year. I mean, it's probably a company that probably uh, benefited through COVID and mm -hmm. had record numbers. And it's like, okay, well, do you extrapolate that out? How do you think about it? That's sort of the big question for a lot of these businesses that we're looking at nowadays. Yeah. And that is how it affects me more then um, overall, what's the price of the market or something like that? Is are certain industries 
uh, abnormally strong right now. So we, these would be good businesses or businesses that I like, but they're having an abnormally good year. Mm-hmm. So it's easier if they're not having an abnormally good year because I have certain ideas of how much I want to pay for uh, a stock and for its record earnings and all of that. And um, it, you know, if you suddenly have a year where you're making 50% more money than I thought you would be in a normal year, it's hard to kind of figure that out because the, the answer is not quite that you should assume it's only worth two thirds uh, of what, of what it looks like it should be worth now. In other words, uh, there is really some benefit to the fact they're having a good year. Sure. Well, look at banks. You want to stay on the bank topic. How many of their balance sheets, their deposits, I mean, grew tremendously Mm -hmm. last year because of COVID. Yeah. And they're, they're, they'll benefit from that forever. Yeah. And it also depends on the, on the bank and what they're saying. I mean, not every single year, but they'll still benefit from it. It's not like that, that position has changed into 2021. Yeah. But so so what some of the banks are saying, smaller banks, uh, usually not, not the very biggest ones, um, is interesting because for some of the, it is really an ideal situation for some of them because some of them are seeing, uh, are claiming that there's a real pickup in loan demand. Um, but a real pickup in loan demand is very inconsistent with um, low rates, low inflation, and all that, um, you know. So, I mean, uh, so I guess loan-to-deposit ratio would have peaked sometime closer to 2000, not really 2008, but maybe 2006 or something like that. So it was pretty high in that period you see with 2000. And uh, But this period in the middle there, the loan-to-deposit ratio was really low. Um, so from the 1930s through the 1960s, while it was rising almost through that entire period, it was very low at the beginning of it. I bet it was 30% or something in the early 30s and probably only got up to 65% or something by the end of, of um, that period and until the really big boom in the 2000s and stuff like that. So it varies depending on the bank, um, but as an overall system, that's a pretty big difference. And so people always talk about it like there's a normal level that way, but it does vary a lot. And that's usually the explanation or one of the explanations for why we have had a lot of expansion in um, the Fed's balance sheet without having big uh, increases in inflation for a long time is simply that it hasn't been transmitted through a high loan to deposit ratio. But at some point, you know, if you're lending to consumers, they're spending it. If you're lending it to uh, companies, presumably they're spending it on the anticipation of having more goods to sell. Um, that they can make money off of. So either way, someone thinks that there's going to be, you know, a lot more spending and stuff or else they wouldn't be borrowing. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, bringing it back to investment uh, process, it's really just continuing to sanity check the businesses that you're looking at, um, you know, have in mind that, okay, well, that company that's trading at a three PE right now on a TTM basis may not, uh, that may not be a normalized number. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, think through what the businesses that can survive if we do have extreme inflation. I mean, you're seeing wage inflation. If you listen to any conference call of, you know, a restaurant or a yeah. theme park or but a lot of, so the, that's an interesting one because a lot of that stuff can be short term. Sure. Right. So yeah. it doesn't, it isn't necessarily a big problem. Um, but housing I mean, can be very short term. I mean, if, but if it's like things like minimum wage going up, there's not a lot of times where minimum wage goes the other way as well. Right. But you're seeing a lot but of people it's, that yeah. it's like they have to pay up to bring people back to work. For example, I know a lot of companies have had issues with yeah. that. So now you're having to, you know, compete and stuff. Um, because it was, it's cheaper for some industries or some people to, um, you know, be subsidized by the government, for example. So, that you know causes right. wages to have to go up. Um, yeah, and there's there's certain parts of the country and certain industries where that would be meaningful, mm-hmm. um, where the subsidies and things would be large versus 
um, their options in employment and stuff. In other cases, it wouldn't be. I mean, around where we live and stuff, it wouldn't be. It shouldn't be causing a lack of labor coming into the um, workforce and stuff like that. However, having been able to work at home for a while, um, if you're in a good financial position and things like that, it might affect certain people. Uh, and not being quick to do certain decisions. It just causes a bit more friction or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on uh, everything going on with China recently? There's been a lot of people that have asked us about that or asked me to talk about on the podcast to get your opinion on it. I'm just kind of curious, you know, how would you think about framing an investment? What would you do to either confirm or disprove? What type of research would you do? So let's start from the top. Do you have any thoughts on everything that's going on? I mean, you have I mean, Alibaba. There's yeah. a lot of big names, I would say, that a lot of people respect that are in these names. And I think uh, you're seeing a lot of, I would call it institutional selling, forced selling by people mm-hmm. that have certain mandates within their fund. I mean, if you're a mutual fund, for example, and everything that's going on, I don't necessarily know if you know, you're know you going to want to own names like this because of everything. So I think there's a lot of forced selling going on in the market. Um just kind of curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, would this be an intru- uh, a situation where you could, you know, not like your Japanese net nets, like a basket, but mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious, like leaps. Uh, maybe you do want to do a basket and you do pick uh, some names and, you know, look to find leaps on companies. I mean, how would you structure this if somebody came to you and said, Jeff, I want to build a position in China somehow? So there's a lot of problems with China for me. Uh, one, don't understand it, haven't been there. Um, wouldn't understand it if I was there. Um, those <laughs> sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> two, um, high corruption and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Three, the corporate governance of a lot of these things is more complicated than people uh, w- would say um, in terms of the situations that you would have legally and, and stuff like that. Um, then you have a different government system, which is a, a major issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then to some extent, the value creation is really focused on the very, uh, certain very large companies and things like that. So certain monopolies and things like that and trying to have very good returns, um, certain very, very big enterprises, but it hasn't been a situation where I found lots of little stocks that I like there as compared to other countries. So, you know, it's not something where, uh, you know, different countries in Europe, Japan, stuff like that, I can find um, little con- uh, little companies that are interesting to me. Uh, generally not that true in China. Um, they're, they don't have the sorts of features that we would like, not particularly high returns on capital and leverage, more heavy use of borrowed money, things like that. Um, so it really would have to be these bigger companies, which is not our focus. Um, and then, you know, there's the government stuff. And mm-hmm. so you just have to think about that. It's kind of like the whole Buffett, is it noble and is it important? And I mm-hmm. feel like obviously the government thing is a very important, uh, factor to this potential investment. And I don't know how noble it is. Yeah. So you could diversify uh, by buying a bunch of different ones. Um, I mean, in some ways, China might be a better place to invest in in some of the companies than, say, Russia or Turkey or certain other countries like that, in that a lot of these don't really have that much to do with the um, specific companies in terms of uh, whether they are in or out of favor, uh, the people involved in it, the sponsors in a sense. Um, But a lot more have to do with uh, societal stuff. And so it would be very dangerous, for instance, in China to invest in anything that might be societally undesirable. So you're running a big risk if you're buying a, 
tobacco in China versus in the United States. Big risk. Um, or it could be healthcare things. It could be, we talked about before the podcast, education things. It could be anything where government policy um, is different. Um, uh, where you're running contrary to the public interest, basically. And so in the United States, that isn't usually as big an issue. If you have a, um, a sin stock, that would not be such a big problem. But because China engages in social engineering, mm-hmm. uh, they, they may just eliminate entire industries and things at times. And not necessarily for the worse. It probably is for the better for the entire country, but it's for the worse for the thing that you own. Yeah, sure. Do you want to tell that story? And I believe you've actually talked about it on the podcast before. The Russian uh, company that you were just talking well, about. Well, there's a company I didn't write the up. Podcast. Yeah, the company I didn't write. It's not right. It was, it's a U.S. company that owned assets in Russia. Yeah, and it was suggest. It, we've talked a little bit about like what are the most recommended stocks to me and things like that, or most asked about why I don't write about them. And for a while, um, there was one that was that was one of them. Um, and yeah, it was eventually taken over by the Russian government. Um, but that's why I didn't buy so it. So, what happens to the equity in that situation? Just well, gets you're wiped, wiped out. out. I mean, it depends yeah. on what the situation is with the. Um, how they handle things, but in Russia, it's wiped out, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of people who've been talking about it. I mean, Munger's obviously in Alibaba. I, I would say Alibaba is probably the, the biggest one I see tweeted about and talked about the most on all these threads. Um, and of course, there's Tencent and JD, but it's a, you know, it's like, how do you build that conviction right now when blood is in the streets? Well, uh, you know, what what do you do? How do you go about it? Um, You'd have to understand the culture, the government, you know, the economic system, a long, the incentives. Yeah, a long time ago, someone asked me about investing in these companies and stuff. And, and I said, you know, I, I don't do it. But they were pointing to three um, retail e- e-commerce things in China. And I sort of said, you know, based on the numbers I'm seeing here, you should just buy all three. Um, some of them may go to zero, but given the compounding that you'll have, um, a bunch will go up. Um, it's going to be a big growth area for the country. There's economies of scale and thing like, things like that that they have. And um, they're not really, as a country, going to be as interested in having other kinds of companies in there. I mean, one of the things with, um, say, it's a you know tech thing or whatever in China, um, is that you have certain advantages because you're not going to really face as much competition from things like the U.S. and stuff, companies, and certain other companies in certain other countries, because um, they will not be able to compete with you um, because of you know uh your rules in terms of information and stuff uh whereas if you're in a smaller country somewhere in the world uh it's much more likely that one of your biggest um competitors is going to be from the u.s or from europe or something like that and so it's less likely here Mm -hmm. it'll get uh you know they'll have a a lot of strength there because they're likely to leave the country at some point by not being able to comply with you know certain rules that you have Mm mm-hmm yeah, but like I said, I think you're seeing a lot of forced selling by institutions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that's typically when I think it's a interesting time for people to, if you're interested in these names and it's, I guess, within your own personal mandate or whatever, uh, it could be an interesting time to, um, you know, just do research and learn a little bit more about the situation. Yeah, and it may be the way that you can find large liquid stocks at the cheapest Um versus you know the rest of the world and everything because it is usually some sort of temporary thing that happens that it makes big headlines and stuff that brings down prices on something like that mm-hmm. you really only get opportunities to buy them usually 
in a you know a wide market crash sort of thing or some sort of big scandalous thing happening in for that particular stock mm-hmm. remember when sector. apple was only like 10 times or 12 times free cash flow and there was really no uh you know bit of a segue here but there was really no massive headline thing that brought that down but what a re-rating that company's had huh mm-hmm. well that company i think went through a um change in that it went from being a growth stock to a value stock so whatever you want to call that it, it's had very slow growth uh-huh um and it's changed pretty successfully in terms of buying back its own stock and doing things like that but you have a whole different group of people who own it so they'll sell out of it and mm-hmm. stuff so i i think that tends to happen when you see something that slows down so rapidly it, i mean you see what the biggest what the revenue growth numbers were in the early 2010s mm-hmm. yeah okay and what they were at the end yeah single digits yeah, yeah. so it, you know that's what happens i mean um you do need completely different people to own it because you're not going to get warren buffett owning it when it's growing 40 percent a year yeah. or something and you're not going to have the people who like things that grow 40 percent a year owning it when warren buffett's owning it it's just so interesting the different type of investment we've talked a lot about that like for buffett for example he gets interested when it's like there's been you know high growth and then it's like uh you want to say there's overextension or whatever over capacity and then you know things come back a little bit and then uh, growth investors are gone and then it turns into a value stock and Mm -hmm. that's typically when he gets involved is when there's much more uh permanence i would say yeah and and you can see how much companies do re-rate based on the perception of how safe they are and things like that there's there's lots of examples of that with very very high quality um companies you see that you know monopoly type companies almost um or companies that are perceived to be so safe uh, and you see it in branded things and food things and, you know, some some other ones like that where there is just a perception of incredible safety. And then sometimes from time to time, there isn't that perception at all. And they're treated more like any other company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where are you spending a lot of your time uh, looking? I mean, a lot of it is financials. Uh, probably half of the time has been financials, which isn't normally what I would say I do. Um, but outside of financials, I don't see a lot of opportunities for things. And I'm not sure that inside financials is a ton of opportunities, but certainly people haven't, um, repriced them. I mean, they've gone up some of them, but they have, they're not repriced anywhere near in line with the rest of the market and not at all. I mean, um, a very good financial company right now, uh, depends on which one, I guess, but a very good financial company with a few exceptions is priced, um, really a discount to a highly mediocre non-financial company. I mean, pretty mediocre um, non-financial companies are in some cases as expensive as the very best financial companies right now. Um, so that's interesting. You know, it just in terms of like how much they grow and mm-hmm. what their prices and stuff. So you can find things in, in banking and insurance that tend to grow faster than non-financial stuff and also that are at cheaper prices, you know. Um, and it's probably a result of, you know, investing in those sorts of things hasn't worked that well for the last decade or so and investing in other kind of stuff has, you know, that tends to be the case mm-hmm. or it could be people's concerns about the future, you know, in those areas. I was going to say, could it be, you know, the quote unquote, you know, terminal value? People don't know where interest rates are going to go. They don't have the best views on it. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know because, um, the issue is there are a few that are probably expensive. If you if you go up, I think Progressive is not cheap. Um, I'd have to see that. And I know that some things ex- that, um, let's see, what are they at right now? Well, 1.4 times. Yeah, ratings. so they're not unusual. Yeah, but look at book. So they're mm-hmm. not that unusual in terms of um, 
Yeah, there, the, and there are a few financials that are like that. So they're maybe not that unusual in terms of premiums and stuff like that, but they do seem, I guess, more expensive on book. Um, but you can see, I think a lot of that is, you know, the really good results that they've had in the last few. You can see right there that they have a very ad, abnormal period in terms of uh, returns that they've had and all of that. So I just think it's certain popular ones. I think for whatever reason, Progressive has become very popular that way. A, a bunch of financials are up a lot in the stock price. I mean, some of them have outperformed the market uh, this year, year to date, and and are still a lot cheaper, a lot cheaper. Um, it You know... I mean, a value stock is probably going to, you know, have a PE that isn't, that is, you know, uh, well, it's below 15 probably. And if you look around, there's not a lot of nine financial things that are that low. Um, I find some from time to time, um, but not great. Most of them, I do think that, that, you know, UK car dealers are cheap, um, and continue to be. But we'll see. That, you know, it could be temporary how well they do. But they're, they'll have a great year, and uh, so on a PE basis, they'll be incredibly cheap for the year. But um, you know, and certain other things too. I, I think you know, say the U.S. Depending on how shortages go and stuff, some some auto parts suppliers will have really low PEs um, this year. Uh, some home builders might, but that's almost a financial. You know, it, it moves in the same sort of area as all of those. Greenbrick Partners is one of, I think it is Greenlight Capital's largest position now. We've yep. talked a lot about this on the podcast. They are in Dallas, Atlanta, and I think Florida, maybe, but mainly Dallas is where they build. That's and, where they start out, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Einhorn is, I believe, the chairman and has been part of this company for a few years now. But yeah, it's their largest uh, company and set Basically, nine times earnings. Basically, they don't trade it. Yeah, really. Because, I mean, they made the investment and then you stick it out. And their yeah. fund, I think, has yeah. Yeah. gotten a little bit smaller. Yeah. So it's a very big position, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it might not otherwise be, except that in a sense he's a founder of it. You know, the fund's a founder of it. Yeah, so they've done great, um, obviously. You know, expensive, though, in the sense of... Um, it depends on how much it went up. But when we talked about before, I talked about the land value and all those yeah. sorts of things in it. So in a sense, you know, with this kind of builder you are speculating a lot on land values and stuff. And mm. so people are willing to buy it at a pretty high valuation versus the likely um, book value of it, which could be near-term results because if certain things last for a while, then you'd have really good uh, margins and all of that. But similar to financial things, of course, what you don't want is uh, you know a tight labor market and, and um, higher interest rates because it's basically all that goes into housing i mean the demand for housing is determined in large part by interest rates and your profit margin is determined by the cost of labor when we go back to like those high inflations in the 70s their margins went to basically nothing for home builders because it all had to go to um paying wages mm-hmm. um so people who made homes the actual people who built the homes did okay um but their wages were rising so quickly because uh, inflation was so high particularly labor inflation so you know it can be difficult that way and then the land values weren't going up at all because uh, in re- you know in real terms because uh of high interest rates so but in a period in which you have low interest rates then they can do pretty well uh demand for housing this is similar to like title insurance that i mentioned before you know on the other hand in a longer term perspective demand for housing could support growth in that for a while because it's been low for over a decade so it's sort of the long-term trend is good. The short-term due to COVID and stuff was unusual and margins are probably unusual, but 
in turn, you're not building too many homes right now versus how much there's been built up over such a long time. So I think people could over uh, could underestimate how many homes weren't built that should have been in the last uh, long period of uh, last decade or so. Um, the same way that with banks, people may underestimate how much um, they could expand given the same amount of equity or something if there was demand for it. Yeah, there's just no inventory, especially in like Dallas right now. I mean, they have that's the issue. Yeah, home prices are going through the roof. There's no inventory. Right, there's no inventory because home prices are. Uh, there's no. I think it's cheaper to rent in some areas than it is to. Um, I'm sorry, it's cheaper to buy than it is to rent. In some right, areas. because of uh, because of mortgage costs and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a little suspicious of that. That I don't think they factor in all the costs. You know. <sighs> Um, what they mean is that the actual payment that you make for the house versus, uh, renting will be, uh, lower. However, yeah, they're like put 5% down or something or, but like nothing. Well, down. I mean like, like, you know, yeah, but I mean, what's your CapEx going to be and stuff like that over time? It's probably a few percent of your home that you're actually spending over time. Whereas an apartment complex could get it down to 1%, 1 point something percent, um, uh, things like that. So I don't think it'll ever be as efficient that way, but people get other benefits out of it. So. Um, there's a large number of people who want to own homes. Uh, you know, I would never suggest it as a way of saving money. Generally, I don't think that owning a home versus renting is going to save you a lot of money. Uh, and I'm suspicious about a lot of the data on homes and home returns and stuff. I think that they severely underestimate how much money people put into the homes that when they talk about how much money they made on mm -hmm. it. Um, but you know, the, the money's very cheap. So I mean, people aren't, the generally households are not willing to leverage up to do anything else to the extent that they will to own a home. Yeah. So if the home goes up at all in value, then you're going to do pretty well because you used all borrow money to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but borrowing a ton of money to do almost anything that's somewhat productive is going to get you really good returns. Cool. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning with the both the bus. Make sure you hit the subscribe button if you want to get access to uh, the website that we use. This is the website that we just were showing on the YouTube side of things. Go to quickfs.net. Tell them that you signed up um, or heard about them from Focus Compounding during sign up. We get a piece of that. It helps support everything we do here. I want to thank everybody so much for the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.